You got to get up pretty early in the morning to sing like that this morning, you know. That's great, fellas. I want to join this traveling group, you know. What a blessing. Well, it's so good to see all of you. And uh, how many of you got eight good hours of sleep last night? Anybody? God bless both of you. That's good. How many of you had your coffee already this morning? That's a good question. Are there any non-coffee drinkers among us? We're praying for you people. I want you to know that. We really are. I am reading right now the biography of uh, Lester Roloff. And uh, it's, it's powerful. It is powerful. Uh, it is um, written by his daughter. And I found a copy of it somewhere. And, you know, you hear a lot of stories about him. But it's just full of faith. Just full of faith. And it stirs my heart. Uh, but, uh, you know, Brother Roloff had a lot of physical problems. So he changed his diet and cut out lots of things. And one of the things he cut out was coffee. <laughs> and he was, he was on a war path against coffee. And uh, somebody said to me not long ago, I was drinking my 14th cup of coffee one day or something, and somebody said, Brother Roloff wouldn't like that. I said, he knows better now. He's drinking it in heaven at this moment. So I believe God made the coffee bean, and he wants us to enjoy it. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, but anyhow, we're going to have a great day together. We had a good time last night, praise God, and I enjoyed the fellowship afterwards and uh, looking forward to spending the day with you today, and we'll have time to talk, not just like this, but individually. If I can help you some way, I would love to do it. And uh, I think the preacher may even have some time later today where we have a few questions and answers maybe for a few moments. Just give us opportunity to discuss something. So if there's something you'd like to talk about, we'd be happy to do it. But I appreciate you carving out time. Everybody's busy, and I appreciate you making a, an effort to be here for this meeting. It's a tremendous encouragement. Let's open the Word of God together again. I want you to find two places, Philippians 1 and Acts 16. Hold Acts 16 in your left hand and Philippians 1 in your right hand. We're going to compare Scripture with Scripture again. How many of you think that's a good idea? And so the Word sheds light on the Word. And increasingly, this is, this is something that is helping me in my understanding of Scripture, connecting these things. Philippians, of course, is the book of the joy of the Lord and the gospel. It is, full disclosure, my favorite book of the Bible. I love it. Uh, it's one of the places when I get low, anybody ever get low? It's one of the places where I go to, and it always refreshes my inner man. Uh, but it is connected to Acts 16 because Acts 16 is where the ministry in Philippi started. And when you come to Philippians, you're about 11 years later. So we're, we're moving from where it all began to where it stands when Paul is writing to them. Let's read just a little bit. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. I, I shared this with the, the church on the Lord's Day, but look at the opening verses. This is not just a nice way to start. Look at all the things God connects. In verse 1, you have two servants, Paul and Timothy. Now, God often sets men in pairs. We're, we're laboring together. And for the record, I preached last night on the partnership of the gospel. I sense a real camaraderie among the, the fellow laborers in this meeting, and that thrills me. It really does. I don't find that everywhere I go. But I will tell you something. We all need the Lord, and we need one another. So I love this, too. Paul doesn't reference Timothy here like he's a lesser than. Look at it, please. They are both the servants of Jesus Christ. So you got the two servants. Then you got two groups. You got the servants and the saints. So you got the ministers and the people they're ministering to. Then you got two locations. I love this. Did you know you're in two locations today? You say, I can't be in two places at once. Yes, you are. If you're a Christian, look at it here. They were in Christ Jesus. They were at Philippi. So right now you are at Brookings, but you are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad to be in Christ Jesus? Seated with him in heavenly places. Then you got the two offices. You got the bishops, that's the pastor, and the deacons, those that are helping the pastor and serving the church. Then you got the two gifts, grace and peace, and they come in that order. You can't get peace until you get grace. Then you got the two givers. God our Father is the sender, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the channel through which the gifts are sent. Every gift comes down from above, but how does it come to us? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then you got two responsibilities. In verse 3, you ought to thank God for people. And verse 4, you ought to pray for people. So he connects praise and prayer. Now, there's a lot of truth packed in those opening verses. And then you come to the first mention of the joy of the Lord in verse number 4. And what a happy letter it is. Campbell Morgan called this Paul's singing letter. And you might imagine he's sitting on a beach somewhere having vacation when you read the tone of it. But nothing could be further from the truth. He's under house arrest in Rome. Best we can tell, this is a man imprisoned, and yet his soul is free. Aren't you glad? Your soul can be free in the Lord. And then we come to verse 5. Would you mark it for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day? We'll go back to the first day in Acts 16 in a moment. From the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Look at the beautiful progression here. You've got the first day, you've got now, and where does it lead to? The day of Jesus Christ. So God sets it in motion on the day of your salvation. How many of you remember the day of your salvation? Was it a good day? Hymn writer said, glad day, glad day when Jesus washed my sins away. That was the first day. But aren't you glad our God's not a past tense God? He's a present tense God. So the God that worked on the first day is working in the now. He is not I was, he is I am. And where will it all lead to? It all leads to Jesus. Adrian Rogers used to say, people say to me, what is this world coming to? He said, I can tell you, it's coming to Jesus. I like that. It's coming to the day of Jesus Christ. Man has his day, the devil has his day, but in the end, Jesus has his day and his way and his say. And that's what we're looking forward to. Now, in verse 5, I hope you've marked your fellowship in the gospel. The fellowship in the gospel makes you look around you. It makes you look at those who are, who are with you and uh, understand we're, we're not in this alone. We're laboring together. Then come across to verse number 12. He says, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me, and things do happen, don't they? The things which happen unto me have fallen out rather, I love that rather, unto the furtherance of the gospel. So in verse 5, the fellowship in the gospel makes you look around. The furtherance of the gospel makes you look ahead. If something is being furthered, where, where is it moving toward? It's moving forward. Hudson Taylor, they tried to convince him to stay on the, on the shore, on the seacoast where everybody was and where it was safe. And he said, nonsense. The people inland must hear the glorious message of Jesus. So he started the China Inland Mission. They said he was crazy. But here is his little motto, God is always advancing. I love that. I think some of us in this generation need to be reminded that God's still on the move. Look here, if he was done, we wouldn't be here. Maybe we shouldn't quit before he's finished. I don't want to coast into heaven. I'd like to cross the threshold with the pedal to the metal. Christ is still building his church. The gospel still works, and the Holy Spirit is still moving in hearts. And if that's true, we ought to be thinking, all right, how can we help further the gospel of Jesus Christ? So we're looking ahead. I think it's interesting, too, in verse number 12, the furthering the gospel is connected not to just what he does, but what happens to him, even closed prison doors become open gospel doors. Maybe right now, circumstantially, you feel hemmed in and, you know, you've hit a wall. Let me just tell you, with God, when you hit a wall, he opens a door. That's the way it works. So when you come to the end of something, God gives a new beginning to something. Paul probably thought, well, my ministry's over at first. Can't preach anymore. Can't travel anymore. Do you understand how much gospel work he got done in Caesar's household and from there through these letters around the world? Think what God set in motion for the furthering of his cause. Don't, don't limit God. Believe that God is able to use you in whatever circumstance you're in. I remember... Uh, a few years ago, and traveling every week like this, God's been very gracious to me to give me health and strength and energy, and, and I, I thank God for that. I know that's the Lord's doing. Uh, but I was sick, and I was homesick for a couple of days, and I was miserable. I was just miserable. And uh, I'd been in the house for a day or two and getting stir crazy, and I thought, I'm going to walk down to the mailbox. Me and the dog, we're going to take a long walk all the way to the mailbox and back. 
and I didn't have a whole lot of energy, and I'm walking down through there, and uh, I was just miserable. I wasn't just miserable in body. I was miserable in mind. Have you ever been there? And I said out loud, just with exasperated sigh, I said, what a wasted day. And just like that, the Holy Spirit said to me, I never waste a day. You know, the Lord holds class in unusual places. And standing there in the middle of my driveway in the hills of West Virginia, the Lord really helped me with something. There are days I think are wasted because I didn't get done what I wanted to get done. But you understand this. When you're in God's hands, the Holy Spirit is working, and he never wastes a day. He never wastes a circumstance. The furtherance of the gospel. And then you come to verse number 27. I like this. The chapter opens and closes and in the middle. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it become of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Would you mark faith of the gospel? If, if the Fellowship in the gospel makes you look around, and the furtherance of the gospel makes you look ahead. The faith of the gospel makes you look above, because faith is always the Godward look. It's the heavenward look. Get your head up. Get your head up. Too many people moping around right now. Too many ministers moping around. I call them Eeyore preachers. You ever met one? Everything's bad. Everything's on the down note. Uh, you know? We all have burdens and battles. I get that. Matter of fact, look at the next verse. In nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. We're all in the battle, but understand, you have the victory in the midst of the battle. Don't miss that. Dr. Robertson used to talk about that little, little poem, two men behind prison bars, one looked at the mud, the other the stars. Some of us need to get our head up again. Lift up your head. Your redemption draweth nigh. Uh, I don't want to grumble my way through the rest of it. I want to keep my eyes on the Lord and my eyes on the coming of Christ. Even when you're watching the news, and I'd recommend you not take in too much of that, but even when you're watching the news, you must look at the news through the lens of prophecy, not the lens of politics. When you watch the news, you ought to sit there and say, Praise God, Jesus is coming. The Lord's putting it all in place. Look at it. We're, we may be on the welcoming committee for the Son of God. Do you understand? You may have been chosen in the good, sovereign providence of Almighty God to be alive when the trumpet sounds. I'm going to tell you, that's a privilege. And I think people who are alive and serving Jesus at the end are going to be very accountable for what we did with the gospel in the last days of this age. Now, last evening, I talked to you about the partnership of the gospel. This morning, I want to talk to you as we begin our day today on the power of the gospel. Because when you read Philippians chapter number 1, it's just power, power, power. Uh, power to Paul, giving him boldness and courage in the midst of difficulty. Power to the Philippian believers in the midst of a worldly place, a wicked place. Power in the lives of lost men when they believe Christ? I'm telling you, there is still power in the gospel. The Lord said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Brother, we've received the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The dunamis, the dynamite of God. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what? power of God into salvation, the dynamite of God, the explosive power of the gospel. Now, I want you to go back with me to Acts chapter number 16, and we're going to walk through this scripture, and I'm going to read a good bit here. Frankly, I think we need to give more attention to the reading of scripture, privately, certainly, but even publicly. I think sometimes in our churches, you know, we read a verse and take off, and we need more reading of scripture. Don't ever be ashamed or embarrassed or apologize for reading the Bible because the greatest words the people ever hear are not ours. And so we're going to read an extended portion. But as I read it, I want you to look at the power. And then I want you to let this sink in. We have the same power. <laughs> Think about that. The same power. As I travel, I am becoming 
more deeply convinced and convicted all the time in the sufficiency of God. It's funny, but when you start out preaching, especially as a kid preacher, you got all the answers. You know, you're going to charge hell with a squirt gun, win the world, and make it happen and get it done. And then the Lord just, you know, lets all the air out of your balloon and brings you to realize how weak you are. And it's funny to me, but at this stage in my life in ministry, I feel weaker than I've ever felt. I feel more ignorant. I feel more incapable. Anybody with me on that? But that's good for us. Because what it does is it brings us to his power and not our own. In fact, I found, you know, when you're preaching every day of your life, literally, <laughs> there are days you just don't feel like preaching. Anybody ever have a Sunday you don't feel like preaching? Well, I have Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and many days. And yet I have discovered that many times when I least feel like preaching, if I'll just lean on the sufficiency of the Lord, can't explain it, God speaks. I'm learning that the secret is not my voice, it's his word. That it is not the power of personality or persuasion or oratory or rhetoric or your vocabulary or any of that. There are days my mind doesn't even feel clear. But when you preach the word, there's sufficiency in that. Oh, the beautiful sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And watch this, the sufficiency of the gospel. It's powerful. You're in Acts 16. They show up in Philippi, verse 12. God had to really work to get him there, didn't he? And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. I wonder about those first days. Do you? I really do. Now, they're going to go on the first Sabbath day down to the riverside. But I, I wonder about those opening days. Paul praying every day, oh, God, we don't even know where to start here. There's not a synagogue in this, in this city. Where do we start? Lord, you're going to have to help us. Lord, you're going to have to give us an entry point here somewhere. Mm. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Now, we understand these are not New Testament believers. Uh, these, are, these are Jews who are observing the Sabbath and going through their religious ritual. And there's not a synagogue there, so they just made a place of prayer by the riverside. And we thank God for that. God's always working on the other end to get people ready. And we'll see that in just a moment. I love the fact that God begins in the place of prayer to do his great gospel work. That's where he finds people who are ready to receive. I also love the fact that it begins with a group of women. And I'm just going to tell you, in my travels, I thank God for godly women because if it wasn't for some godly women, there's a whole bunch of churches would have closed already. Never minimize the work of women in the work of Jesus. It was the women from the Galilee, you remember, that followed our Lord and ministered to him. I think they still are. And may God multiply their kind. Look at verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, I love this expression, whose heart the Lord opened. And she attended into the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us. Isn't that just like the devil when God is working? What's he do? He pokes his ugly head up. Servant slithers into the garden. Everything God ordains, Satan opposes. Is the Lord blessing at your church right now? Is, is the gospel advancing? And don't be shocked when the hounds of hell push back. Because the devil didn't like that. Look at verse number 16. A certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination menace, which brought her masters much gain by Sue, saying, The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. <laughs> but Paul, being grieved... Preacher, you ever get to the place you just had enough of it? He just heard it enough. He turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
and he came out the same hour. That's power. And when our masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace and to the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. May I just tell you, that's gospel power too. Let me just time out a second, all right? Can I give you a parenthesis? Do you understand that it's not just lost people who need to hear the gospel? It's God's people. And sometimes we have this idea, well, we, we got lost people here today. We're going to preach the gospel. Let me just tell you something. Every good thing grows in the garden of the gospel, and I'm fearful that very often we are neglecting the great principles of the gospel message and the permeating nature of it in even preaching it to God's people. You, you want to help your people? Preach the gospel to them. Because a fresh glimpse of the cross changes everything. It changes everything. I got a friend in Canada that writes me every day. He closes all of his correspondence with the same, same words, walk by Calvary every day. It's been a very healthy reminder to me that every day I need to visit the cross. Don't you get far away from what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you and who he is and what he means to you at this moment because of the gospel. And I think it was the gospel that put fresh power in these servants. It gave them courage and it gave them boldness. How many of you want to do a better job of preaching the gospel to others? I'll give you the first suggestion. Ready? Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach it to you. Remind yourself you're a sinner and Jesus is a wonderful Savior. And meditate much on the grace of God. And as you do that, it will be natural. No, supernatural. But you will want to give it to somebody else because you'll be like the disciples that couldn't help but speak the things they'd seen in her. You'll speak out of the overflow of the gospel fountain welling up inside of you. That's what's going on here. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he threw out, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. By the way, that's the kind of world we're living in right now. People with no hope. Do you know suicide is up 200% from my dad's generation to mine? Think about that. We're the most depressed, drugged generation in the history of the world. I mean, I'm hearing of preachers taking their own life and, and people in good churches thinking they got nothing to live for. Solomon said a living dog's better than a dead lion. How many of you are breathing? If your neighbor didn't raise her hand, check on him real quick, would you please? If you're breathing, God's not finished with you. And one of the beautiful things about the gospel is it doesn't just give you hope for eternity. It gives you hope today. I love this. Paul was a hopeful man. I mean, he's sitting, he's sitting in jail, friends. But he's full of hope. And he looks at the man who just beat him and says, look, don't hurt yourself now. Don't hurt yourself. I love that. See, when you start looking at people through the gospel lens, it doesn't fill you with hatred. It fills you with love. Can I just remind you of the wrath of man working, not the righteousness of God? You know one of the great dangers right now? God's people, if you're not careful, can get as angry as lost people are. Here, let me tell you something worse than that. You get angry at lost people. Some say, well, we hate sin. Of course we hate sin. You ought to hate it first in your own life. If you don't hate your sin, stop hating everybody else's sin. But I tell you, we need a fresh baptism of the love of God. That's what makes the difference. Compassion's what makes the difference. 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest thing in the world is the love of God. We, we need a fresh dose of it right now. I think one of the great dangers right now for believers is conservative news. 
Not liberal news. Conservative news. Now, I'm going to tell you why. Just because it's conservative doesn't mean it's Christian. And if you're not careful, you'll get a conservative perspective on what's going on in the world, but it will not be from the divine perspective. And you'll get so agitated and annoyed and ticked off at people that you stop looking at them as souls for whom Jesus died. That's very dangerous. And I love the fact Paul looks at this man and doesn't see an enemy. He sees a man that needs Jesus. Verse 29, he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't know if he had heard their message in the marketplace, if he had heard them preaching. I don't know if someone else had told them what they'd been talking about. I don't know if they'd had a private conversation while they were in jail in the middle of the night or if maybe between these verses there's a little conversation going on. All I know is this man knows these men have something he needs. And oh, don't you love verse 31? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Oh, I love this. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. Could I just remind you, people don't need our opinions. They just don't. And I understand, especially if you're pastoring a church, that you're called on to give counsel on a variety of things and you've got to speak to issues. I totally get that. I understand that. But I just want to caution all of us that everything we talk about should lead people to Jesus. And if it doesn't, if we're talking on all of the social and political and economic and moral issues of the day, but we never get them to the cross, we have failed. We should begin at the cross and we should end at the cross. We must bring people to Jesus face to face with the message of the gospel. And that's what he does. And not just to him, look at the end of verse number 32, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his straightway, he just put the stripes on them. And now he's putting some salve on the, on the stripes on their back. Let me just tell you, only one thing does that, friend, the power of the gospel. And this is the kind of dynamite power that just blows it all up and changes everything, reorders it. What is this? This is, the, this is the change God brings in the inner man. Look at verse number 34. When he brought them into his house, he said, he said meet before them. Don't tell me there's not some humor in this. I mean, he just threw them in jail. Now they're sitting at his dining room table. He's feeding them. I love this, and rejoiced. Anybody remember what the theme in Philippians was? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And you know what I think? I think the church at Philippi was a happy place. That's what I think. Would you pray God would make your church a happy church? A joyful place. The kind of place when people walk through the door, they sense the joy of the Lord, because we're living in an everlasting miserable world right now, and everybody's looking for some joy. Wouldn't it be good if we exemplified that? Our, our work we call enjoying the journey, and, and it came through, through many ways. But one of the ways, years ago, I was just a boy preacher. I, I heard Curtis Hudson, who's in heaven now, say, I know I'm going to enjoy the destination, but I'd like to enjoy the journey. And it just stuck in my heart. And I thought to myself, I am going to enjoy the destination. You think heaven's going to be a happy place? Phew like nothing you've ever experienced. But I love this. God didn't make it so you have to die or be raptured to enjoy him. You get to enjoy him right now. So you don't have to wait to heaven. Here you can rejoice. How? Because of the gospel. Look at it again. He set me before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And the rest of the passage, there's quite a stir in the community. I mean, it shakes everybody up. You know what that is? That's the power of the gospel. Let me give you just a handful of things. Would you write them down? You can make them in the margin of your Bible or wherever you like. Notice, first of all, the power of the gospel in Lydia's story. Back up to where it all started, first convert, that's Lydia. 
Look at it in verse number 14. What's the power of the gospel in Lydia's story? You might write this down because I believe there were many people saved in Philippi, not just these people, but the Holy Spirit tells us about Lydia, the demon-possessed girl, and the jailer for a reason. I think they're representative of what God does through the power of the gospel. In Lydia, we see the power of the gospel over religious ritual. Do you know what Lydia was? She was a religious woman. She was a worshiper as far as she knew. She was a woman of prayer. She was there on the Sabbath morning. She was going through the motions and mechanics of her faith. She was doing what she knew to do. And then, hallelujah for that Sabbath, a gospel preacher showed up and told her about Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. Never been a Sabbath like that Sabbath. That's the Sabbath she really entered into rest. Real rest, the rest of salvation, the rest found in Jesus. You know what I believe? When you preach the gospel, one of the marks when we're really preaching the gospel and seeing the power of the gospel is religious people get saved. Now look, you know God's at work when religious people are getting saved, right? Remember in Acts, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And one of the things I've rejoiced to see in, in churches traveling is that when you just preach the gospel, you just preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit works in people's heart, and many times the light comes on, and for the first time they realize, I've never been born again. I, I've never really been saved. Now, for the record, let me just say this. I, I don't like the idea that you go into a place, try to make everybody doubt their salvation so you can get everybody to make another profession of faith. I'm not into that at all. In fact, Hold on to your seat. I don't think it's my job to lead people to doubt or to lead them to assurance. Somebody says, well, I'm trying to lead people to assurance. No, no. It's not my job to lead them to doubt or to lead them to assurance. It's my job to lead them to the truth, and the spirit of truth will either convict them of their sin or bring them to a place of real assurance in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But my job is to give them the gospel, and when you preach the gospel, the Lord shakes loose people from the religious moorings and the religious ruts and rituals they've been living in and shows them they need Jesus. And I'm convinced that we got a lot of lost church members in our churches. And the only thing that's going to shake it loose is the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. People ask me sometimes, why do you give gospel invitations? Why do you give an appeal? And you know, the whole lot of debate about that and kind of thing. And I, I just say to them very simply because I believe we're called on in Scripture not just to, to give the gospel, but to call people to believe the gospel and obey the gospel. I believe it. And uh, it's, I'm very pointed about it, very specific about it. Uh, I don't high-pressure people, but I give people an opportunity to respond to God's revelation. And I think I would encourage you to do the same. Don't you give up on that. Uh, don't get to the place where you're just giving a religious lecture and letting people go on their way. Some meeting is going to be the last opportunity you have to, to encourage somebody to look to Jesus and be saved. Don't miss a single opportunity to do that. Don't ever take a meeting for granted. Don't assume everybody in the place knows Jesus as their personal Savior because you never know what God is up to. I've seen that repeatedly. I was preaching in a meeting one night on a Tuesday night. It was a, it was a kind of a, a combined meeting. A bunch of churches all get together. One church hosted it, and it was a revival-type meeting. And it was one of those meetings. Place was packed and lively singing, you know, for the Lord and, and people praying and amening. And, you know, you just think, well, everybody here knows Jesus, you know. And I got up, and I was preaching. It was a message to believers, and I got about 10 minutes into the message and uh, I felt very definitely prompted of the Holy Spirit to give the gospel. Now, that, that was a little strange in that setting, but I just felt very definitely prompted of the Holy Spirit, you're to speak now of Christ and, and give the gospel. And so I just wove that right into the message, and I'm sure they thought it was planned, but it wasn't planned at all. And the minute I started giving the gospel and talking about Jesus, I saw my eye connected with a woman in the back right hand of the church, pretty good-sized church. She was sitting about three or four rows from the back, and I saw her. She bowed up, and she crossed both arms, and she glared at me, and she started shaking her head violently. And I thought, now, you know, something's not right there. And the more I preached on Jesus, the more dramatic she became in it. In fact, even the people around her were, were shocked. Uh, she was a visitor. I didn't know who the woman was at the time. Uh, this is interesting. At the end of the meeting, 
tell you how it turned out in a moment. At the end of the meeting, one of the men of the church came to me and he said, Preacher, he said, I can't believe what God did tonight. He said, I, I'm on security here in our church. And he said, when that woman started making that commotion and disturbing things, he said, I, I started to get out of my seat to go to her, to try to get her out of the building. And he said, I can't explain this to you. He said, but I could not get out of my seat. He said, the Lord just kept me there and said, you're not to get up. And I preached a little more. And, you know, when you see somebody doing that for a preacher, that's like saying sick them to a dog, you know. So I'm pressing the gospel, I'm pressing the gospel, I'm pressing the gospel. And the longer I preached on Jesus, I watched her. She, first, she's, she's sitting like this, shaking her head. She stopped shaking her head first. She's just glaring at me. And then a little while, I looked back, and her arms were not crossed. And I looked back again a little bit, and she was sitting on the edge of her seat looking like this now. And we got to the end of the meeting, and I gave the invitation. Of course, I was going to call on believers to come. I'd really been preaching to them. And I said, is there somebody here that needs Jesus tonight? You're not saved, and you need Jesus. And her hand goes straight up in the air. And I said, if that's you, lift your head and look at me. And she sat straight up in her seat. She's the only person in the room looking at me. And I said, do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want peace with God? She's not shaking it this way now. She's shaking it this way. And I said to her, then get up now and come. Come, let somebody show you from the Bible how to be saved. Boom, she's out of her seat down the aisle. She gets to the front. She's weeping. She took the pastor by the hand. I did not know. She was a Muslim woman. Think about that. Somebody just invited her to come to the meeting, and she showed up. And we started talking about Jesus. She didn't like that at all. But by the time the whole thing was over, she stood to say, I've taken Jesus to be my Savior. Now, I'm going to tell you what that is. That's the power of the gospel. Don't tell me the Lord can't open hearts. I love that phrase. Mark that phrase in Lydia and verse number 14, whose heart the Lord opened. And it looks like a lot of closed doors in this chapter. It's not. It's all open things. Uh, I love this. In, uh, in verse number 6 and 7, Paul has an open mind. In verse uh, 9, he's got open eyes, a vision. Uh, at the end of verse 9, he's got open ears, God speaking. Uh, in verse number 10, there's an open door. And when you get to verse 13, there's an open Bible, <laughs> an open mouth. The preacher shows up at the riverside, opens the Word of God, and opens his mouth and speaks to them of Jesus. And when you get to verse number 14, there's an open heart. And when you get to verse 15, it becomes a, a, an entire open household. The whole family gets open to the gospel. I'm going to tell you, that's power. What power is that? That's not Paul's power. That's Christ's power. That's the power of the gospel. Number two, in Lydia's story, you have power over religious ritual. In the story of the demon-possessed girl, you have power over satanic opposition. So you've got to deal with religion. You're in a part of the world where there's a lot of religion, but not a lot of genuine faith. And uh, lots of religious strongholds. I was on an airplane the other day, and uh, man was man was coming here, trying to think where I was going. I was coming here, and he was flying in. He and his son-in-law to go pheasant hunting, and he's from North Carolina, Bible Belt, and uh, very kind man. And we got to talking, and and I said to him, well, "Tell me about yourself." And he told me about his business, and he found out I was a preacher. I said, "Do you have a church home there?" In the town where you live, I knew where he lived, preached there. And he told me it was a Methodist church, and I said, well, that's good. Uh, I said, um, uh, my grandparents were free Methodists, and we started talking about that a little bit. And, and uh, we worked our way around to John Wesley, and he wanted to talk about Wesley a little bit, and Charles, and Charles's hymns, and, you know, well-educated, well-informed man. He said, you ever been to the orphanage down in Savannah? I said, I've been there. And we talked about that a little bit. And then I said to this this Methodist man, I said, did you know that when, when Wesley was there, he actually was not a converted man? And he turned and looked at me, and he said, really? I said, no. I said, he was a religious man. And he was doing lots of religious things, but it was not until he went back to England that he had his heart warmed and his heart open, and God really showed him who Christ was and his need of salvation. And that was really the time of his conversion and opened a whole new conversation not about church, not about Wesley, but about Christ and a real relationship with Almighty God. We must look for open doors for the gospel. And the gospel deals with religious ritual, but now it deals with satanic opposition. We are in spiritual warfare. 
And it's intensified. Has anybody here noticed it's intensified lately? I got good news for you about that. The battle is always hottest just before it's over. We're, we're real near the front lines now. We're fighting against the gates of hell. Just over the next horizon, Jesus is coming. Isn't that good? And you're on the winning side. That's even better. But look at it carefully. In verse 17, this demon is speaking through this girl. And it's fascinating to me. I thought a lot about this. Look what the girl says. These men are the servants of the Most High God. Is that true or false? That's true. Which show unto us the way of salvation. Is that true or false? That's interesting, isn't it? You know, sometimes even the devil has to tell the truth. She rightly identified, the devil rightly identified who they were and who Christ was. Who is Christ? The way, the truth, and the life. He is the way of salvation. That was their message. So everything that the devil says here is accurate. I wonder in what tone she said it. I personally think it's one of two things. I either think it's either being said mockingly, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. You know, it's a mocking kind of thing. Or it is that the devil is trying to target these men, put his, put his bullseye on them, because... Look, please, persecution was real at that time, and he's identifying everybody. I want you to know who they are. He's trying to take them out, which for the record, I think is probably the case because later in the chapter, it seemed to work at first. They get thrown into jail. Aren't you glad? If God be for you, who can be against you? Who can separate you from the love of God? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. I still, I still laugh every time I think about the prophet's servant that morning when he woke up and opened the shutters to fix breakfast and looked out and the whole Syrian army's camped outside. And he goes in and says to the preacher, we got problems. And what does the prophet say? They that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now I'm using a little sanctified imagination, but imagine, put yourself in his sandals a minute, all right? He runs back to the kitchen and he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, eight. Sir, you're a wonderful preacher, but your math is bad. It's bad. And he says, Lord, open his eyes. And at that moment, on the hills all around them, he saw the flaming chariots of Almighty God, angels with swords drawn in their hand. <laughs> I want to say to you, we, we better remember we're not in this thing in our own energy and power. It is the power of the gospel. In fact, look at the next verse, verse number 18. It's the name of Jesus Christ. There's only one name, one name that hell trembles at and heaven rejoices at, and only one name under heaven given among men where we must be saved, but there is power in the name of Jesus. And we must use it reverently and meaningfully. We must preach the gospel because it alone has power over satanic opposition. And then one more, and I'll stop. How about the Philippian jailer and his family? What about their story? In it, we see the power of the gospel over worldly persecution. Philippi was called Little Rome, and this was a high-ranking official in, in the Roman hierarchy. Uh, there was a lot of worldly pull and push going on there. You know there's a pull and a push in this world. The pull, that's temptation the pull of the world, the push of the world, that's tribulation. And there's both. There's the, the lure of this world to certain pleasures and things. And on the other hand, there is the opposition, the push back against the right thing. And I personally think the preachers are dealing with both. But don't you love the power of the gospel there? Look how it changed this man's heart. By the way, you ever think about all those other prisoners that were in the jail? You think anybody else believed on Jesus that night? Let me ask you a question. What shook the doors open? God Almighty. What kept all the prisoners in? Do you think if the prison doors across America flew, flung open today, all the prisoners would stay inside? The Lord alone kept them in. 
I mean, walk through the passage. Everything in this passage is God at work, God opening doors, God opening hearts, God opening homes, God saving sinners, God bringing convictions. Salvation is of the Lord. Our responsibility is just to get it out. If people aren't being saved, one of two things is wrong. Either the gospel has lost its power, or we're not doing with it what we're supposed to be doing with it. So pick one. Has the gospel lost its power? No. Are we doing with it what we ought to be doing with it? The Great Commission did not say build a church, open the doors, and let all the lucky sinners come find you. Now, I love preaching the gospel in here. I love it. But we've bottled it up inside the church house so long and at organized meetings, it's no wonder we're not seeing more people saved. If you hadn't noticed, sinners by and large aren't rushing into church buildings today. Somebody said, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to do what Jesus did. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He literally pitched his tent next door to us. Get out where the sinners are. Because I promise you, they're out there. And when you get out in the highways and hedges, when you get out in the harvest field, and you just start talking to sinners, and they're not all going to get saved, but some of them are. They're not all going to listen, but some of them will. There is power in the gospel. i leave you with this thought. Look at verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, I want you to mark this. This is really important. This verse is not a footnote. They comforted them and departed. Can I tell you what I believe? I believe the gospel is not just power for lost people. It's power for God's people. It not only brought conviction to sinners, it brought comfort to these saints. When they heard what God was up to, what the Lord was doing, God is always working on both ends. The gospel is what keeps the church where it ought to be. It's what keeps us on center. It's what keeps us fixed on Jesus. It is the gospel. And the moment we vary from that just a little bit, God's people don't have the comfort they need. I told you last evening about my friend Stephen who's with the Lord. Today's anniversary of his home going a year ago today. And uh, he was a man just given to God, given to the gospel. His favorite motto came from the Moravians. Do you know the story of the Moravians? Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf, was about uh, 18 years old or so in an in a art gallery in Germany when he walked past an artist rendering of Calvary. And he saw an artist idea rendering of the three crosses and the man on the middle suffering. And no artist can do that justice, but it captured him, and he stood there looking at it, and he turned to walk away, and when he did, there was a little caption, a little plaque beneath the, beneath the painting that said these words, All this have I done for thee. What hast thou done for me? And it just smote him. He was a student in the university, so he goes back to the university thinking about that, and Calvary just captured him. I mean, the love of Christ constrained him. He couldn't get away from it. And he said to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what I can do. What would you have me do? And the Lord prompted him to start a prayer meeting. So he starts a prayer meeting with a group of boys that he lives with, fellow students in the university. And you can research this for yourself. Somebody just reminded me of this the other day. That prayer meeting went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 100 years. Look it up. It was the 100-year prayer meeting. They enlisted so many people praying, they started praying around the clock. And then it spread to other universities, and then it spread to other countries, until eventually, at every hour around the globe, somebody was praying. And their primary prayer was they were praying for gospel laborers. And do you know what grew out of that prayer effort? Now, it starts with one guy, and then it starts with a group of people praying. Do you know what grows out of that? The Moravian Missionary Movement. And thousands and thousands and thousands of 
Young people gave themselves to the work of Jesus and to the preaching of the gospel and crisscrossed the globe. Hundreds of thousands of people were saved over the next century, all because one guy got captured by the gospel. And of those Moravians, there were two young men who heard of an island that had never heard the gospel. The reason it had never received the gospel is because it was a privately owned island and the only people that lived on the island were slaves. The only outsiders that ever came onto that island were servants. And these two young single men decided it was the call of God on their life to go to that island. True story. They sold themselves into slavery for the sole purpose of getting to the island to preach the gospel. And on the day they left, a host of family and friends came to see them off at the dock as they boarded the ship to go to the island. And they said those two young men stopped halfway up the plank and turned around, raised their hands toward heaven with a smile on their face, and these were their words. It became the cry of the Moravians, and it was Stephen's favorite statement. He closed all of his correspondence with it. Those two young men said, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I want to remind you that this gospel work we're in is not about us. It's about him. For the record, it's not just about those people you're working with. It's about Jesus. And if you can keep your eyes on Jesus and your heart fixed on the gospel, you'll see the power of God unto salvation. Lord, by your Spirit, would you teach us today, just like Jesus promised, guide us into all truth. Show us your way, Lord. Make us the gospel laborers we ought to be, and let it get so deeply in us. Let us get so consumed with it that we will go home to enlist others to this great work of the gospel. And I thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.